American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today for our Postmodern Conservative series, I am joined by a writer I admire and have been longing to talk to for its four years now, or almost, Chris Arnadi, who just has a book out, Dignity, on the subject of what he calls back row America, that is to say, all the Americans who are left behind. We will talk at length about the issue of community and how much people in these situations need communities and how much they struggle to find it, to make it happen, and what resources there are and what striving there is in people who are neglected or disrespected as a rule. Now, first of all, since it's our first conversation, please introduce yourself to our audience and tell us how you got into writing this book. Yeah, hi, thank you for having me. As you said, my name is Chris Arnotti. The book is called Dignity, and it's basically a summary of what I learned over the course of seven years, eight years of spending time what I call back row America, overlooked impoverished communities. I call it back row because I think the divide in the United States is about education, and so the places that I went are unified by being places defined by a lack of education. But they're everywhere. It's not a red state or blue state thing. It's not an urban or rural thing. I did both. I spent three and a half years in the poorest neighborhood in New York City, which is in the Bronx. Then I got in my minivan and went 400,000 miles around the country and went to every neighborhood I could visit in the United States that, in a community that is defined by being stigmatized by others or forgotten. That includes red state rural places such as Kentucky, border towns such as El Paso, and California, places like Bakersfield in particular. In L.A., for your listeners, I spent my time in Rivera or Downey or Compton, and you know, I spent an aggregate six months in L.A., and I never think I went. I went to Hollywood one day. <laughs> the bulk of the time was in Compton and East L.A. Um, so places that people, I think, know exist, but if they think about it, they think about it in usually a negative way, places that are defined by high crime, high poverty. And I did this to give you some context. That's something mostly uh, sociologists or anthropologists would do, but I'm neither. I had been a banker. I was a banker for 20 years, and I pivoted into doing this solely for personal reasons. I had an interest in photography, and so my photography took me into these neighborhoods initially, and this became a project that ultimately resulted in this book. What I try to show in this book, the title explains it, is that what I saw in all these neighborhoods and communities that I think people don't talk about except in negative terms was a great deal of humiliation and frustration that results in a, what I would call a desire for dignity. How that desire gets expressed can be political, hence the Trump election, or it can be through methods of trying to find community, which I extensively about, I think we'll talk about in McDonald's and also in churches, faith. So I jokingly say I started this project in 2010, a atheist vegetarian, and I ended up being a McDonald's meat-eating, uh, church-going, uh, <laughs> you know. So, Yeah, you seem to have gone on a very strange journey. In a way, it's all American to go and try and find America, but this is not a part of America that we hear much about. It's certainly not a part we see, and you explain in various ways in your book how hard it is to get there, how hard it is morally and intellectually to realize that these people are also Americans, and they try to do the things that so many other, most Americans try to do. It's just harder. It's just that their failures stack against them in a way that's not supposed to happen there should be second chances or some other option and yet often enough there aren't and nevertheless these people are defined by the same things as all americans are indeed that's part of the tragedy right i think about it is and it's how the framework i ended up coming to and i wrote in my book is they're the out group 
in contrast to the in-group people who have elite educations. I call those the front row. And, you know, if if you went to Harvard or you went to Cornell or if you went to um, NYU or Columbia and you got postgraduate degree in, you know, something or other, you generally are, even if you're different politically, you're generally the same person. I always say a professor of sociology at Cornell has more in common with a bond trader than they do with a kid flipping hamburgers in Milwaukee. And I think the front row, the educated class, they have a worldview, and that worldview is dominant. It's a philosophy. It's an ideology. It's a way of thinking. It's a culture that is dominant. And if you don't have um, the education they have, you're in the back row, to use a schoolroom analogy, and your worldview is profane. It's scorned. It's seen as secondary. And so if you try to live your life the way you want to live your life, you're going to suffer for that. Some of it will be um, explicit suffering, but a lot of it's implicit. A lot of it's quietly just being scolded for you know, wanting to stay in your hometown or believing in God or any of those things that the educated secular elite views as kind of being backward. So I think that the gulf is not just about your actions. It's just about the way you think and the way you frame the world. In that sense, I think it's one of the deepest divisions we have in our country. You know, I think race and income clearly have those characteristics, but I think not as deeply as educational divide. Yeah, I mean, it's a part of American politics that we should look at some level for progress. And that always puts us in a position where we are tempted to look at things as obsolete, left behind, from a different century, from a different era, relics antiquities, things that don't even deserve attention. They're just leftovers from a process of progress that has created these new elites who have remarkable successes in America and around the world, and perhaps because of those very successes, simply cannot fathom these other people. That's true, but I think what's more dangerous also is when they want to help the other people, they want them to become like them. They think of them as, quote, lesser humans, so the only way they can... um, They have to change to become like them. So, for instance, there's a book by a New York Times writer, I think his name is Christoph, called Tightrope, which is similar. It came out about six months after my book, where him and his wife, who's a former partner at Goldman Sachs, went to interview, quote, back row people. And their solution, and I don't offer solutions in my book, that's one thing that we can talk about, but their solution was, well, we need to get these people into colleges. We need to get these people educated. They need to become like us. (laughs) And so it's a very colonial attitude which is, um, I see these people who are different than us, therefore they're wrong and they need to reform themselves to be like us. Like I said, there's a cultural colonialism that comes with being in the front row that your goal is to either scold people for not being like you or to help them become like you. And in both cases, is a dominant view that the only way to exist is to be like me. Yeah, I think this is indeed crucial to understanding why, even if people are well-meaning, even if they intend to understand what happens, There are very serious impediments merely to understanding. So much of your book is dedicated to showing how hard it is and also what it means to listen to people, to listen to what a a person's actual life was like in the cases where people are willing. And often people turn out to be willing or even eager to share their experiences. But it is so hard to do indeed because we assume everybody has to end up the same. Everybody has to end up in college. And since college is an achievement, not being in college makes you inferior by implication. That's exactly right. And I don't fully blame this. You know, I'm not myself a liberal, but I share the old liberal idea that you should try to understand why people are the way they are. I think so many people are morally and intellectually crippled by success because they themselves, when they were young, knew that they had to transform themselves to conform in certain ways in order to achieve the success they so desperately desired. They had to ascend into this class. 
to go through those colleges and those paths of internships, fellowships and clerkships and so forth to get to success. And so everybody should do that. That experience of transforming yourself to fit a vision of the elite that you want to be part of ends up being the only way that you can become truly human. Yeah, I say it provocatively, but I think it's partially true is I think it is a form of colonialism, intellectual colonialism, where we're the dominant view and we're going to stamp out any minority views. It so happens that the minority view in this case is actually perhaps the majority (laughs) in, in voting power. And so consequently, it's a little bit inconvenient when a small group controls the ideological landscape. But I think part of my problem, I just reviewed the book Tightrope, and part of the frustration is people like Christoph are well-intentioned. Him and his wife really care. And the problem, in some senses, those people can be more dangerous or more damaging than somebody who at least is cynical, <laughs> you know, because beware someone coming with good intentions who's screwed up. The way I think about it is there's a phrase in the African-American community, the black community, that captures this well, which is, you know, they've long said to be successful, you have to act white. You know, you have to behave like the majority. To change your dress, you have to change your behavior. You can't be who you are. And I think to steal that language, I would say you have to act educated. You have to act front row to be successful in the United States. But that doesn't just mean, you know, you have to actually have a resume. Once you have that resume, you have to believe certain things. Only certain forms of faith are allowed, and they're very non-faithy faiths, (laughs) Um, and certain views about politics and the way the world operates are allowed. You have to be for globalism. You have to embrace this certain philosophy of life that sees humans as kind of widgets that are, are out there to increase the GDP, and anything you know more deep than that is considered ideologically profane, and you're going to suffer in your life and your career for holding those views. I think about it in the framework of the in and of the out group. You know, anybody who's in any small industry knows what that's like. For your listeners who are in Hollywood, they know the movie industry is very much controlled by a certain way of thinking. And to get a movie produced, it helps to have that view. (laughs) You know, people know about in groups and out groups. And so you can broaden that to the country as a whole. If you're engaged in what I call the resume arms race and you're out there building a resume and getting educated, you're part of the dominant group. And the people who push back against my view most are people who might have a PhD. Um, but don't feel economically successful, adjunct professors, for instance. And they'll say, well, wait, what do you mean I'm in the in-group? And I'm like, well, look, it's not just about economic empowerment. It's about being in a position where your views are considered sacred. Also, you have the ability, the roadmap to navigate in the world and be successful should you choose to be. If you don't want to be an adjunct, you can pivot to being a banker, being a journalist, or being whatever in a much more easy way than somebody who grew up in a trailer park in West Virginia or a poor black kid in Buffalo. Yeah, you make a very good point here. The fact that our elites invite all sorts of aspirational people to try their luck to fulfill their dreams and many of them do not succeed, indeed the majority must by definition not succeed in becoming elite, does not change what is happening since everybody involved in this has to tell himself at a deep level and with great resolution that he will transform himself, reconstruct his identity in accordance with certain views. There is a required unanimity, kind of liberal libertarianism. It has to be individualistic about lifestyle, also individualistic about economics. It has to deny all the things that are not chosen. You don't choose your parents, you don't choose your race, you don't choose the place you're born into or the age you're born into. And some people take these things very seriously. Some people only look at them as obstacles or not even as obstacles, as curiosities. And now we are in a situation where this difference of opinion about how much does it matter that certain parts of your life you didn't choose, you were just born that way. 
how much do those things matter? And the elites are all on the side of those things shouldn't matter at all. Yeah, I call those non-credentialed forms of meaning. There are three of them. One is place, i.e. where you're born. The other is um, race, or you can extrapolate to nationality. And the other is faith. Those are three forms of meaning. Those are three forms of valuation of self-worth that are gifted to you. Now, some people turn around and say that they're not a gift. No, they're a stigma. Regardless, they're given to you at birth, as you say. You don't have to have a resume to have them. And we have denied the value of those. The third one, race, is complicated because the elites need to have that be valuable in a certain way. And so it makes it very complex to talk about that one and dangerous. Um, it's the most dangerous of the three, obviously. I think you're, I don't need to explain to your listeners why that's the most dangerous one. But by taking away faith in place, i.e. your community, it's made the third one the most natural for people to go to. And it doesn't help that the in-group, the elites, also have a lot of conversations about race that make it easy for others to be drawn to having that as a form of meaning. And so to use a right-wing buzzword, they weaponize it in a way that allows others to weaponize it as well. I mean, I'll say very simply, we don't want race to be the one that people go to. It's just dangerous for so many nasty reasons. And I think history is littered with examples of where that becomes primary, why that's bad. But by taking faith and place away from people, you've often left them no other options. And I think the front row, the educated elite becoming this world is thinking in that framework of a very rigid, pragmatic, utilitarian way of looking at the world, which is, you know, family, I can't measure the value of family or faith, therefore it doesn't matter. It's a very positivistic way of looking at the world. If they can't look at it in a spreadsheet, I can't measure the value of faith, I can't measure the value of communities, therefore it doesn't matter and we can get rid of those things. And so to become part of the front row, to be successful these days, you have to be willing to ignore the value of family, ignore the value of place, you have to be mobile. You have to be, as you said, you know, accept these certain ideological views about the world that emphasize the individual and the individual's experience over the communal health. You know, someone in a review of my book said the front row has structured and they control things. They control the policy debate. You know, they're a large part of the political class. So they set the agenda in many ways for the policy that we live in as part of being the in-group. And they've created a policy that's not conducive to community health. And I think that's the best framework to look at it is that it's very hard, both personally and economically and culturally, to build a small, local, thriving community and to live a life where you value place and faith over economic success. Yeah, I think that's right. The arrival of new elites in America that are based in a certain form of higher education, in certain prestigious universities, and everybody who imitates or admires them, has also been, as you said, an attempt to fix everybody who is on the wrong side of America, whether they want the fixes or not, whether they understand them as fixing or as meddling or harming. And indeed, as a federal government and as a kind of civil religion, America is fighting wars on poverty, wars on drugs, wars on all sorts of things that afflict people whom the people proclaiming wars would never meet willingly or share a meal with. That perhaps is the most important part of the war analogy that policy is so impressed with. It's fixing the moral failures of the failed part of America on the part of people who would never join those people in any meaningful way. And instead of these things leading to solutions, or instead of creating new institutional ways for Americans to become happier, to achieve more justice, or at least to be okay with each other, we see instead how people react when they try to build community. And the opening segment of your book, and the first thing I noticed about you when I started following you four years ago, is McDonald's. 
nobody bet on this, nobody was trying to achieve this, and it's still hard to get people to talk about it, except if they can think of it as a kind of journalistic joke, an angle to look at the world, not a lived reality. But when you run out of community, when you run out of ways for people to live together, to make serious decisions together and act together, so many Americans in so many parts of the country have turned to McDonald's as the place for everything from drugs to God, everything from gossip to talking to old friends, everything from seeing what's happening with other people and the desire to be near them in some way to just passing some time without being reminded of your misery for so many people who suffer. Yeah, one of the things that yeah, I was doing over these eight years of this project was spending a lot of time in McDonald's for the same reason that people was um, documenting or talking to were spending time because it was the only functional form of community in a lot of these neighborhoods. Gary, Indiana is a perfect example, a town that's an African-American community that suffered immensely over the last you know, 50 years. You know, they're on a Sunday and or a Saturday, and one place that's really functional is McDonald's. And it's a community center. It's a town square. And all those things you said take place in McDonald's. Um, you know, this isn't positive thing. <laughs> You know, I, I love McDonald's. I'm a booster of them, but you know, I'd rather there be other forms of community than McDonald's. You know, the ugly irony is that the front row, the educated elite, the ruling class, whatever you want to call them, have created this landscape of McDonald's. This obsession with profits, this obsession with you know conglomeration, this obsession with globalism has given the world a lot of McDonald's everywhere. But they won't use them. <laughs> They filled working class communities with McDonald's, but they won't go into McDonald's themselves. And so let them eat Big Macs, you know, <laughs> let the plebes eat Big Macs and the plebes eat Big Macs because, you know, again, it's function, it's good food. It's inexpensive, but it's all they got in many cases. And so one of the things that I think I, I hope comes across in my book is when people say, oh, my God, McDonald's or town squares, that tells you how much people want community. You know, if you give people a landscape of depressing franchises, they'll end up forming community in them. <laughs> because community is that important. And McDonald's highlights to me how important community is, so important that people will form it in you know, a place designed to be short-term transactions. You know, people spend eight hours in a place designed to be a, a quick transaction. That's how much they want community. You know, I think everybody who does the work I do, who spends time in both these groups of people, the back row and the front row, the wealthy and the poor, has a test to show which one you are. And my, I, for me, it's the McDonald's test. If you view McDonald's as this hyper-efficient franchise that serves junk food and you only go to it when you're forced to because your kids need to use the restroom, then you're probably an educated elite snob. <laughs> but if you know, if you view it as, oh my God, that's kind of like, that's where I go for my morning coffee. That's where I meet my friends. That's where I go to get my Wi-Fi because my Wi-Fi at home is shitty. L.A. is a perfect example. I think I spent my six months in L.A. in five different McDonald's scattered throughout East L.A. and Downey and, you know. And I'm sure if I walked into the one McDonald's I spent the most time in four years after I was there first, I would see pretty much the same people. <laughs> I know a bunch of their names. I know their stories. You know, there's a guy who gets there at five who reads the Bible out loud at his booth with his coffee before going to his job at a warehouse where he's been working for 30 years, Mexican-American guy. The 21-year-old woman who goes there at night to play her Game Boy and use her laptop because her house doesn't have Wi-Fi. If I went there, I'm sure she'd be sitting in the same booth that she was sitting in four years ago. You know, the various street walkers and homeless people who come in at various hours to pull their um, newspaper out of the garbage can and to sit there and pretend like they're reading the newspaper, you know, so they don't attract attention. If I go into McDonald's in Selma, Alabama, it's going to be the same thing, a variation on a theme. People find a community in a place that is stigmatized by the elites as being kind of beneath them, even though they make money off of it. 
Yeah, it is a painful irony to consider and at the same time a testament indeed to the resilience of people who not only won't let their lives be rearranged by elite institutional programs, by the ideas of recreating people through institutions, but also a testament to resilience of this other kind, people's desire for some form of togetherness, some small acknowledgement of the pleasures of life. It might seem like very little in a way, but to not understand it does reveal a certain obtuseness of mind and a certain heartlessness that doesn't go well with professions of inclusiveness or tolerance or a willingness to have diversity encoded in the arrangements of justice. And there is something shocking to think of it, of McDonald's this way. And I I can tell you that I ended up in McDonald's spending half a day in this one place, half a day in the other in D.C. Out of circumstance, I didn't choose to go there. It was just the place that was available. I had to kill half a day. And you you can't forget the stuff and the people you see there. Some of the stuff breaks your heart. Some of it is very, very amusing. And it switches very quick from one to the other. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It does. One of my frustrations is I think, you know, I try to capture some of that absurd humor and dark humor in the book in various places, particularly the McDonald's in Bakersfield, where it was 115 to 120 degrees. I was there in August. Don't go to Bakersfield in August. And, you know, the McDonald's was in a neighborhood that's filled with homelessness and prostitution and addicts. And, you know, there was a game about trying to get free soda. (laughs) And, you know, it was humorous, you know, even though it's desperate. One of the things I wish I had done more in my book is show the humor that exists You know, there's a dark humor that comes with, you know, if you're an oppressed group, and in my view, you can't get any more oppressed than being a black addict in Gary, Indiana, for instance. You got everything against you. And, you know, just the resilience and the humor that is found in people who are dealing with really awful situations. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I've been invited to give a few talks in D.C., and oddly, all the think tanks are exactly in the same place. The Brookings Institute is right next to the AEI, which is right next to DuPont Circle. And, you know, two blocks away is a McDonald's, I think, or three blocks away. And I go to that McDonald's when I'm waiting, and it's just there's such a juxtaposition to walk into these really expensive think tanks that are supposed to understand the world and know that all they have to do is go three blocks over, four blocks over, and spend a week sitting in the McDonald's, and they'll meet the people they claim to be advocating for or scolding. You know, the Mexican-American or Central American uh, construction workers who come in and break. The various homeless people who use it to use the bathroom and, you know, just working class people who do live in D.C. People forget D.C. has, you know, one of the things is you don't have to go far to get away from the elites. I mean, you just have to go a few blocks over often because the places that the elites live are often the most um, in unequal cities. They don't practice what they preach. You know, you talk about the ideological uniformity. I think it's one of those things that it's very frustrating to explain to people that front row educated elite circles are you have to have a credential to get in. It's just right there. It says you can't come in here unless you have the following resume. Once you're in there, then it's inclusive, But except for the fact you need an admission ticket. So it really frustrates me when – and look, the best thing about the front row in my mind, you know, I am. I got a PhD in physics. I love academics. I don't want to – you know. but the problem with the academics is they can't see their own privilege. You know, I think the best things that the front row has done over the last 40 years is dismantle the racial segregation that we've had. And for that, I applaud them. And I think they um, rightfully can turn to themselves and say, well, we did this. But what's happened subsequent to that is I think they had this victory and then they just turned their back on the people who haven't. That victory was powerful. But like I said in my book, I went to Selma, Alabama, a place that is celebrated as you know being a sparkling example of that victory. Once a year, people go to and the TV cameras turn to, but the rest of the year is a hellhole. 
the lived reality for minorities is not that much better than it was 40 years ago. You know, so that victory, it's hard for them to live off the of laurels, the success of that victory, when on the ground, there's still so much racial intolerance and so much pain and racism in this country. And in many cases, they now support a system that supports that racism as well. That tolerance is often only a charade that they use <laughs> to hold up their power. Yeah, it's very easy to see what the failures of poor people are, broken families, drug addicts, criminals, people in and out of the system, as we can say. But it's not at all obvious in our public discourse what the failures are of the elite class, the people who fought and lost all these wars, the people who promised that they would transform life for all Americans, everything was going to get at least sort of better, especially indeed by championing the outgroups. Elites justified their privileges by saying that they're going to save black people, they're going to save Mexican-Americans, various kinds of immigrants. And nevertheless, it's not just that. Oftentimes, it seems like elites read that Emma Lazarus poem and think, you know, that's a great way of getting a nanny. That is a great way of getting some people to work my lawn. Yeah, I mean, the, the... Disgusting about that attitude. No recognition of their own failures to deliver on the promises of this new situation that's supposedly going to help the poor out, going to help the excluded out. Yeah, you know, again, elite spaces look diverse because they let in a few who have PhDs from Harvard, but the vast majority are still, I mean, like I said, look in New York City. It's one of the most racially divided cities in the United States, D.C. You know, <laughs> you walk five blocks away and you have an excluded minority. So it's very frustrating. They'll look around them and say, look, we're really diverse. Yeah, everybody there has a PhD from Harvard or Ivy. And, you know, five blocks is a neighborhood of black people excluded. You know, you're scared of. <laughs> and similarly for Mexican-Americans, you know, it, they themselves are more shielded from the, you know, I always say that the spaces that they make fun of, like McDonald's and Walmarts, are actually the most racially integrated places in the nation. When I go into a town and I want to find immigrants, I go to Walmarts or McDonald's because that's where they're going to be, sharing spaces with white working class. You know, the lived reality, the wealthy elite, the educated elite do not deal with poor people, not in a lived reality way. They don't know them as friends. They know them as employees. You know, this book that I talk about, Tightrope, done by the New York Times op-ed columnist, he has an actual thing you can do now. One of them is hire poor people, basically. He hired someone to work on his vineyard. I mean, that's the actual sentence he wrote. He was going to help the poor by hiring some people with troubled histories work on his farm. Again, they view people as people to save, but not to become friends with. <laughs> How dare I actually become friends with somebody who has different political views than me or is profane both in language or behavior? But I can't hire them to be my gardener, <laughs> you know. So there's a real intellectual colonialism. And I think you saw a lot in the way the – again, my book is not about Trump because I don't write about politics. But it took place during the election, and so I got um, eviscerated by people online for predicting Trump would win. Then I got blamed <laughs> afterwards for his <laughs> – but one of the nasty things that came out of the election, there were many nasty things that came out of the election, was this framework of, well, you know, Hillary won the economically successful places. She won the country that produces 65% of the GDP. You know, there's this real divide. And I think this pandemic is exposing this divide between people who produce and make things and people who do knowledge work, what I would call um, unessential labor. And the unessential labor makes all the money, you know, and it's the people who do the actual production who make things. You know, who work in a tire factory, who, you know, grow our food, who pick our food, who drive our food. There's a big division where I think the educated elite can't see the value in that. They live in these gated communities where they just assume that these dirty people produce their food for them. And that's expendable. 
you know, those are profane people who I don't need to see or don't need to deal with. And we are better because we're intellectually superior. It's a really arrogant view. And it's a really ugly intellectual colonialism that in some senses is also physical colonialism. We in these 10% of the country should rule the other 90% of the country who produce our food for us. <laughs> Yeah, it's an astonishing thing to have happened to America since the creation of the new elite was all about rationalizing things, universality, democracy. And the result does seem to be, to a large extent, the belief that what we really need is a more oligarchic oligarchy where the money calls the shots. What we really need is this sort of system where claiming to act on behalf of the poor means that you can tyrannize everybody, including the poor. You know, if this guy hires somebody on his vineyard, that's not a bad thing. No, it's not. But, I agree. But what is his ideal society? The sort of oligarchic aristocracy based in the land that hires people to work on their land? Well, and, you know, like, it'd be nice if they took care of people, but that's not democracy. That is not America. Yeah, the thing that I always say is the paradox of current American politics is the elite fetishize democracy. You know, we the people. You can see it in the op-ed columns of the New York Times, and the anti-Trump conservatives are the perfect example of people who, you know, they love democracy so much that they'll bomb other countries into having it. And then they hate populism. But it was like, whoa, wait, what? <laughs> you, you love democracy so much that you hate when people vote against you. So, like, what do you want? Like, do you want democracy, the we the people, this beautiful nation of individual voting? And when they vote the way they don't like, then all of a sudden it's evil, it's labeled populism. You know, and therefore, it's a problem we have to deal with. There's something corrupt in our state because people are voting against us. So it's this weird paradox of obsessive fetishizing and then hating people, <laughs> the voters. <laughs> you know, there's enough books that percolate within the elites. It comes mostly from the hard right. I've seen some people say it and then not realize the irony of what they're saying is that we need our veterans to be more educated. They almost need to have to pass a test before they can vote. You know, we should give people with more education, higher number of vote shares. You know, think policies like that. You know, people say that explicitly. Implicitly, they're saying that when I want I want, ed I want our voters to be more educated, we need more informed voters. Yeah, fuck that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> people are pretty informed. <laughs> You know, <laughs> they're all of a sudden uninformed when, you know, when you don't like their, their voting. Yeah, I mean, there are certain things about people's lives that uh, you learn from books like yours and from going around and actually seeing these places. Who could possibly believe that people do not know what's happening in their lives? They don't walk around their own neighborhoods. You think they don't know what goes on there? It takes the shocking yeah. privileges of being on top of America without being responsible for the rest of America to live in a world where you don't really understand what's happening around you. Yeah, I mean, one of the most, one of the phrases they use, I think, is just so arrogant. I mean, it's just jaw-droppingly arrogant is when they say people are voting against their economic self-interest. <laughs> like, maybe you don't, you know, to put it in their language, maybe you don't know their utility function. You're assuming utility function for them. That's the ultimate arrogance. You know, you think you know why they're voting. They're, <laughs> some of it's they're voting just because they want to piss you off. <laughs> There's a great utility in that. <laughs> they get and it works. <laughs> yes, they get great joy out of making you angry. <laughs> you know. Yeah, They're... so an entire wave of mid-century liberalism has crashed. It has certain great successes, but it has also accumulated too many failures to continue since it has gotten people around to thinking that in the name of fulfilling all our fantasies of universality and equality, we have to get rid of all the equality we actually have in our politics. That madness cannot long continue since it is premised on such a naked contradiction. But what it would take to modify it is indeed too big a problem to even begin to deal with.
you know, there's much in your book that is heartbreaking, but there's also actually quite some reason for hope. And even when there isn't a lot of hope, you know, there's a certain nobility to people trying desperately finding community at McDonald's. It is not what they would want. It's not what anybody wants. But it's achieved something that was supposed to be either unnecessary or possible, depending on how you think about the revolutions elites wanted to impose on the rest of society. There is something about the resilience, even of the fuck you voters, or even of the people who just don't bother to vote because what the hell's the point? They know at least that they're being screwed over and they are not going to bend over for it. They're not acceding to the demands to pile insult on top of injury. Yeah, you know, the most people in my book didn't non-voter, and most of them were minorities. Um, because, like, think about them. I mean, the sham of democracy is like, votes don't matter. Like, if people aren't idiots. It's interesting that the same two groups of people who disagree on so much share this view. They understand that voting is pointless. Um, go to the most pragmatic economists and they'll prove, as any mathematician knows, voting is pointless. Your one vote's not going to change anything. Similarly, countless people in my book over and over and over and over, I heard so many times of versions of, it doesn't matter, nothing's going to change. You know, we had Bush, we had Clinton, we had Obama, nothing changed. And blacks will tell me straight up, we had a black president for eight years and I'm still fucked. <laughs> so like, what does it matter? You know, there's this real scorn for people who don't vote. But at some like, why, why play the game, man? You keep losing. <laughs> no one's going to listen to you. You know, you don't have the power to get everybody around you to vote. So you can't start a mass movement sitting in your shotgun shack in Alabama. You're not going to be able to change things. No one's going to listen to you if you complain. So they understand at a lived reality level that voting is not going to get them better. And also, voting is getting involved with institutions they don't want to get involved with. Well, you don't want to go to jury duty. Like, every time you've ever dealt with the bureaucracy, it's been bad. It's burned you. It's taken something from you. It's wronged you. It's screwed you over. So why get involved anymore, man? Like, it's just pointless. And so there is this real stigma attached to not voting. But I kind of I understand people who don't vote. It's like, why bother, man? Why take part in a system that's just chewed you up and spit you out for so long? It doesn't understand you. It doesn't listen to you. And then when you vote and something like Trump happens, you know, then all of a sudden you're evil. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's no win, man. <laughs> yeah, this is a shocking situation to have come to, really. Another thing that comes across very well in your book is, as you say here, that the more you see how people feel when they actually come into contact with our modern federal government, it's not good. It's not just that they might not like the local cops or what have you. It's that they do not like any interaction with any of the big systems that are supposed to run people's lives. The welfare redistribution state is not giving people dignity. Absolutely not. And that's why I write about faith. And that's partially why I think the left wing didn't like my book very much. Churches form the same role that McDonald's do. They're the places that work in these communities. And, you know, I spent five years of my life with street addicts. Visiting them in jails, visiting them in prisons, taking them to detox, taking them to hospitals, taking them, you know, out of hospitals, driving them across country to visit their parents, you know, just basically immersed in their lives, trying to, quote, get them better. Navigating through these brutal bureaucracies that the welfare system has produced, these places filled with harsh fluorescent light, linoleum floors, scolding platitudes, you know, just, just really just this place with no soul and no dignity. And then you walk into a church. And it's just the aesthetics is just striking. The aesthetic difference between a church and a welfare office, you know, one has soul, one has beauty, one has hope, one has. But it's more than that. It's at the, at the very core, it has people who are running it who get you. 
they're not cold bureaucrats who are following a guideline. They're people who have maybe gone through something similar to you. They might be your neighbor. They look like you. They act like you. They get you on a lived reality standpoint. You know, they offer a lot more beauty and a lot more dignity than these cold bureaucratic institutions. You know, it's like, <laughs> would you rather go to, you know, a Roman Catholic church or a DMV office? You know, <laughs> and it's it's just like, I'm from the left. I, I believe in a social safety net, but I also have a sense to know that bureaucracy is bad. <laughs> that all these this habit trail of rules and bureaucracy that we've created for poor people is to me it's like kicking them when they're down it's just it's insulting and at a personal level it's humiliating yeah i think that there's no better contrast than this people were never supposed to turn screwed up businesses destroyed urban spaces into churches any more than they were supposed to turn mcdonald's into another community place but they have these are the success stories that we should be trumpeting, but we're not. It's very rare that anything is said about these things that recognizes this is where people feel I'm a human being among other human beings. I would not be able to do it alone, but we can do it together. That's, That's right. That's a rare and precious thing. Yeah, you know, I probably should have highlighted in my book, former fast food places have turned into churches, you know, like the Kentucky Fried Chicken and somewhere in Alabama, I forget where in Alabama, that's now a Baptist church, you know, or um, a Pentecostal church, you know, because nothing, nothing captures the kind of innovation and desire for dignity that happens in the back row America than, than having a, you know, a Pentecostal service in an old Kentucky Fried Chicken or an old McDonald's. Taking what they've been left with and using, you know, the innovation to turn it into something that's both filled with hope and community. There is this entire other America out there. America is a great big place. And most of the time I traveled on Greyhounds and Megabuses and the kind of people you meet there, their <laughs> willingness to share their story. That oh, taught I... me an immense lot about America. And I have to say, I've also been often enough in this situation where I shift from seeing people at the local McDonald's to just one morning of Washington. You see the Filipino ladies who do custodial work, janitors of some yep. kind somewhere, and who are chatting breezily before work kids who come in a bit later and you know like this is truancy these kids should be in school and, and of course there are always a couple of people who are both crazy and crippled that break your heart and you see them they just stay there this guy in a wheelchair not even looking at anything you know he still knew that it's better to be inside where it's warm and yep. then nobody gives you grief up until a cop showed up and threw him out which is i don't know maybe you shouldn't have done that but i also understand the other side of the issue you just look at these things and people hours after hours and then you go on and talk to your friends in a think tank or people who might be interested in listening but you wonder you know will they really listen we don't really have solutions for just how great this problem is but if we could get it in our heads that how we've thought about solutions up till now has been incredibly demeaning and a failure at the same time then maybe there is another way yeah i think the you frame it very beautifully when you say the way we think about solutions has been very demeaning, and that's exactly the case. I use humiliating. Demeaning is just as good a word. You're made to feel like a second-class citizen because you are. You know, <laughs> and I'm not so cynical that I don't think a lot of these people, a lot of the elites, aren't well-intended people. I think they are, and that can be more frustrating because I don't think they realize how condescending they are. I think post-Trump, it's been less about being well-intended. But in general, it's frustrating for me because I know both worlds, and I'm comfortable in both worlds. I actually, I like the educated elite. <laughs> I'm an educated elite. <laughs> you know, I, I spent a lot of this podcast beating up on them, but that's my wife. That's my friends. You know, that was my father. I love academics. I'm an intellectual. So it's frustrating to me to be in academic spaces. Want to just want to shake people and say, you don't get it. You're in a bubble, man. 
<laughs> you start off with good intentions and you and you've spun out of control to a place now where you're so meta and so inside your little world like these debates are all grad school seminars you're missing the absurdity of these grad school seminars talking about people who clean your floors when you don't bother to talk to the person who clean your floors it's like analyzing the person who cleans your floors why the person who's cleaning your floors is sitting there not able to listen to you analyzing him it's just so frustrating yeah <laughs> Yeah, a lot of this comes down to when will reality hit? Because I see in my friends who share our sophisticated world, you know, I went to grad school, I go through think tanks and these sorts of things. I don't have much against them. But I also think at some point reality will hit these people. They react to news that this reality has already hit many other people in a very American way as equals. You know, who am I to tell them that I know better when we're all equal? All of a sudden, it's about equality in that case with people who profess inequality every other occasion. But I have to say that I, I've seen more of this sense of equality among, you know, this poor lady who should have been crazy by rights, but somehow was sane because of her religion, who just started pouring her heart out to me on a bus because we were sitting side by side. That's really what equality feels like, that this woman was not ashamed of herself in front of me or thought that there was no way that I could understand what she wants to say or that there was a chasm between us that couldn't be in some ways bridged. But this is exactly what our elites act like, as though the chasms are simply unbridgeable. They simply lack those instincts and those habits. And perhaps they've just not been beaten around by life like that woman was to pour out their hearts, to confess their fears, to look for somebody to tell them that we're in some sense in this together. One of the problems, I think, over my life, I'm in my late 50s, and it was harder growing up as a child to be educated and removed from people. It just society was much more integrated. Now society is much less integrated. So you can grow up the son or daughter of a professor or a journalist and not know the working class. And consequently, on the left, have no familiarity with the people you claim to be advocating for. And on the right, you know, just have no clue whatsoever. And so it's just really frustrating because I think a lot of people don't understand that their entire worldview comes from this kind of bubble. They just don't know. <laughs> they just, you know, they don't know what it is to be on like a, a cross-country bus and to hear the stories you heard or to listen to the stories I heard. But, you know, 50 years ago, it was hard to be a professor or a wealthy and not have to hear those stories because life was a lot more not racially integrated, but a lot more educationally integrated. Yeah, I think so. I mean, in talking to people, I have found that it's mostly old people who have some experience of this sort of stuff. What the rest of America lives like. They know it from when they were young enough, at least. They are less strangers in many ways. This is the thing that strikes me about your book. It's like you're a stranger to yourself, recovering your own experiences as a child and as a young man. A stranger in America that you're discovering and discovering in what ways you are an American like all these other Americans. And this is apparently very rare for people in the elite class. They are perfect strangers, however much they talk about being welcoming and open. They somehow can have no community with the rest of the population. Yeah, and again, I think a lot of it's just out of fear. A lot of people don't want to go into, quote, the bad side of town, even though they claim to advocate for the people who are in the bad side of the town. I think there's just a lot of physical fear. I think there's a lot of intellectual fear. This is not their element, man. It's like, you know, they don't know how to operate in that world. You know, they're used to basically winning the arguments in grad school. They can win a debate. They can be number one on their debate team. But when they get into an actual setting where people are <laughs> into a street level debate, they're going to lose um, because the rules are entirely different. So they're scared to go actually engage with people who you know have a different worldview than them. Yeah, you know, it's, it's frustrating. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think 
people are afraid that the failure, the misery is contagious. Just like don't touch these people, don't go near them. And somehow they do not see that. You can talk to any number of people in any number of places and they're just people. They're remarkably kind for people who are suffering. But it's not that remarkable except that we're not used to it. That's right. It's who they are. It's not like they invented it for the sake of me or you or anybody else. It's their way of life. It's remarkably warm. I mean, I've had the privilege of visiting many, many people in America, and it has done far more for my sense of the future of the country than really almost anything else. I've discovered that I just don't really care a lot about people's fears if they are sophisticated elite people. Because I don't think they have any idea what world they're living in, and they have no idea what the resources of their fellow countrymen are. That's right. Again, I think um, there's a closed-mindedness in academics of the successful class that is contrary, again, to their view that they're into diversity. I mean, it's just, again, it's frustrating trying to convince them how bubbled they are because, you know, you say that and they're like, oh, that's a buzzword, bubble elite. Well, but you're bubbled. You are. It's a buzzword because it's true. Yeah, it's as though if you call something a trope or I see what you're doing rhetorically here, you don't have to consider the reality anymore. But But, I mean, uh, it's just like I remember when I was in L.A. Again, I think I spent a total of six months or five months over two trips. I was stunned to find out that a lot of people, you know, blue check marks, people who I respect, too, like, you know, oh, you're in L.A. Where are you? I'm like, I'm in Downey or Pico Rivera. Like, where? You know, like, and everybody wanted to meet me. I was always, I had to meet them and like, you know, they wanted to meet in Hollywood or, 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 you know, these, these parts north of downtown, basically. Yeah. And it was just like, wow, you know. In a way, I get it. I spent some time in the flower district. When you meet people, you can tell immediately in LA whether they have any idea what that sort of thing is like or if they don't. Because they act, look, they have a different gait. They're different. And they would never want to see. It's right there. One of my friends in LA who knows what goes on, one day just said to me, you know, downtown's had the bad century. And that's just like a normal attitude for a local. It's been a bad century, you know? (laughs) That's what it's like. It, It doesn't get better. People don't overcome their suffering. Things don't thrive, whatever the promises, whatever the changes. So people just give up. To use New York, well, people can live entirely in Upper West Side or Upper East Side, and it wasn't until the 90s that they started going to Brooklyn. They would even consent to go to Brooklyn. You know, I knew bankers when I got to Wall Street who had grown up in New York City and had never really been to Brooklyn other than to pass through it to go to LaGuardia or JFK. You know, it's just like they don't know their own neighborhood. They don't know their own town, and, you know, it's just it's frustrating, but, you know. I think with New York, it's a little easier because you have to be on subways, so you have to know other people in some level. But as New York has become more and more gentrified, it's become harder and harder to kind of have all of Manhattan south of 125th Street has pretty much been gentrified now. It's hard to have that much differences. I think at least now we're going through a kind of shift. I hope certainly that your book will be the success it needs to be for people to read it and take it seriously, to learn that this is a country around us that we can really have access to for chump change because it only costs a buck something to get coffee at McDonald's. And you know what? It's not really bad coffee. I would rather buy coffee at McDonald's than Starbucks. There's something that rubs me the wrong way about Starbucks that doesn't about McDonald's. So it's as easy as that to get to see you. And also to people who are snobs who are listening, if you're like me and you like lattes, McDonald's actually has lattes, so they have a machine. You can get your latte. Don't ever try to get the low-fat latte because um, (laughs) they don't move very often, so the milk gets bad. And also, you have to say five times if you don't like sugar, no sugar, no no sweetener. You have to say it. (laughs) Yeah, those are the habits, right? I mean, Uh the number of times I've 
especially in Latino neighborhoods, man, they look at you like you're the devil if you ask for no sweetener. <laughs> yep, and, and I get it. Like, this is another thing that I read in your book that I thought this is exactly what my experience of life teaches me. So you know what part of town you're in? You go into a, any kind of store, and then do these people have a lot of diet sodas? Because if they don't, you're in the part of town that people think that they shouldn't be in. That's exactly. You can. <laughs> that's what it is. People eat their sugar. Try finding a diet soda in the Bronx, man. <laughs> They'll laugh at you. <laughs> One thing, I don't tell my sophisticated friends this, but what I believe is that Starbucks is like McDonald's for people who are more alienated. They're desperately needy for community, and they think they're superior to the broken Americans because they have better jobs or fantasies. But I don't think they're really better at getting community. I think, I think um, that's why it's a success. I think Starbucks is now recognizing it needs to de-elite um, itself. And I think Starbucks is actually trying for the, quote, downscale market. And I think they're aiming now to be more working class, which I give them credit for. Starbucks has gotten better that way. What's happened to Starbucks is the elites have moved on from Starbucks, which is now considered beneath them. So now you have kind of the bespoke artisanal coffee shops and latte places that have sprung up. And so the front row has started to leave Starbucks behind and Starbucks has fallen into the back row's hands now. And so, oh so Starbucks, is, Starbucks is becoming, in my mind, better um, because it's more fucked up. <laughs> you know. But I still would rather be in a McDonald's than a Starbucks any day from almost any level. But Starbucks has good lattes, you know. I think there's people, there's a certain aspirational quality in the back row. They know that the way to success is to get education and to act like the front row. And what I call the aspirational back row always sees Starbucks as the way to go. They're the intellectuals in their community by going to Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's part of human nature. Um, so, folks... I hope this conversation has persuaded you to follow Chris Arnade on Twitter and especially to get this book. The one thing about the book that is perhaps most important that we've neglected is just look at the pictures. And of course, your Twitter feed is also complimentary. Add so many more pictures of the America you have visited and the Americans. Why, why they want their picture taken, what they look like in their pictures. This is a chance for people indeed to get that dignity and some of these things will make you cry, people. There's no, there's no reason to lie about this because that too is part of what it means to be human. And so just go online, since we're all locked up anyway, go read Chris Arnade, Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. Uh, thank you very much. I hope you um, your podcast seriously and buy my book. <laughs> yes, I am. I already have it. I was just reading it again today. I'm looking to review it, hopefully persuade more people to talk about it. That's what it feels like when you're a writer or a podcaster. You, you hope to be able to influence people in some way, but uh, I have no idea whether that's so. Nope. Now that it is possible to say all the things that you are saying, it is also so hard to know whether you can get across to people really, whether it adds up to anything. It's yeah. the strange shift we are going through all of us can speak out now but is anybody listening right. we have well, to try <laughs> well i appreciate your effort and uh and i enjoy the conversations and at some point we could have a personal conversation about romania <laughs> <laughs> yes I, I i look forward to that thanks so much for joining me first of all, all right. so much more to the book to talk about but this should pique people's interest and persuade them that this is the real deal thanks a lot all right cheers man bye bye